My name is Jared Crome, and I'm black in Appalachia. A gun is dangerous. I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat that. It is a tool that potentially can be destructive and it can sadly take people's lives. You have to have a, a certain mentality, in my opinion, that you are a community member and you're not just an individual with a firearm. When you do that, you, you put yourself amongst the us and not the them. What's up, podcasters? This is Nkeshi Elamin, sociologist of race and place and Black Appalachian experiences. And this is Angela Dennis, journalist specializing in race, equity, and social justice. And you're listening to the, the Black, Black and Appalachia, Appalachia podcast. podcast. Whoop, whoop. And so I'm sure you remember as much as I did how great it was for us to do that interview last year with Miss Nikki Giovanni. Yes, it was like the highlight of the whole year. It was definitely during a pandemic. It was definitely <laughs> everything for us. And you know, when I think back to that interview, one of the things that Nikki said that still resonates with me today was that she came from gun people. Right. And she told us that way, way back in the day, even like before that she was born, that her family had always been gun people. They let the white neighbors know like they didn't mess around. Exactly. The story about how she came to Knoxville was a story where her family had to show up and show up with their guns. So if you all are not familiar with that story, listen to our episode on Nikki. Go back, listen and then catch up. But so when I think about that, it makes me think about this contemporary moment where we see so many black people becoming gun people and right. maybe not necessarily gun people, but many black people are buying guns. And we'll talk more about that distinction later. But just in the first half of 2020, there was a 58.2 percent increase in gun purchases by black folks. Wow. Yeah, that's an interesting statistic. And that just goes to show that black people are definitely getting strapped up. So I assume that in this episode, we're talking about gun people. Is that right? <laughs> we're definitely talking about <laughs> gun people or Guns. <laughs> gotcha. People choosing to own guns or, you know, guns. All right. So I'm just going to jump right in and ask you, like, are you gun people, Angela? Do you own a gun? <laughs> you know, what's your personal take on guns? Wouldn't you like to know? I would. Tell us. <laughs> so I think up until probably just this past year, I wouldn't consider myself a gun person, but I definitely have been exploring gun ownership for myself personally as a black woman. I've been to a gun range. Oh, <laughs> well, you're better than me. But, uh, so I have taken that step to get more acquainted with the feel of a gun. And I would say growing up, I had mostly like a fear, like if I was around someone or a guy that had a gun, you know, in the presence and I see it like I would freak out. But I think this past year, it's made me feel like more protected and more safe. And I don't know if it's because of just everything going on in the world in the past year with police brutality, crimes against black women. For some reason lately, I do have the desire to to own a gun for myself, for my personal protection mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, I am definitely not a gun person in no way. Guns were never a thing for me. My brother was killed when I was in high school by gun, by the police. And that's something that I have not dealt with 
fully, mm-hmm. but I know it's part of my aversion to yeah. guns. And I remember when I moved to Knoxville, I met my husband and he's not a gun person either. I think that his family over the years have sort of evolved into somewhat gun people. Yeah. But I know that at the time that we met, he owned a gun. And when he told me I had a visceral reaction, like, yeah, please get rid of it. Like, get it. I didn't even know when it was gone, but I knew it was gone. And lately, again, sort of like with everybody else, the conversation sort of been coming up again. Mm-hmm. And I don't have the same knee jerk reaction Fear, to it. Yeah. It's just like, mm, OK, I'll let you talk about that over there. <laughs> and maybe, you know, I can be in the same room yeah. with this conversation and maybe I'm open to see what a gun range look like. But that's about it. We wouldn't necessarily be considered gun people. A person acquiring a firearm doesn't really make them like a gun person or a part of gun culture, you know, that that some people, especially I think people this year who are, you know, buying guns out of this immediate profound sense of fear and and concern for their safety, you know, they may buy that gun, stick it on a shelf or stick it in a safe. It sits there for a year or two unfired. And then the person says, well, why, why do I even have this thing here? I bought it two years ago and it's never been out from its case. So I think that that's something to watch. That there's a lot of excitement among gun people about all the new gun owners. So that was David Yamani. He's a professor of sociology at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And he gave us a really interesting perspective on gun culture. The thing that's most interesting to me in this surge in gun ownership by black folks, which I know is a response to the racial violence that we saw last year, right? right. It was sort of sparked by, one, I think the pandemic for sure, but also the killing of George Floyd, right? Yeah. And and everything else that was going on. And even before that, just sort of like this whole activation of racist people on yeah. Trump's administration. But the thing that I'm thinking about is black folks in Appalachia, because If Appalachia has this overwhelming perception of being Trump country, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. racism rampant country, (laughs) right, a.k.a. white people want to pop off country, then I'm thinking about how are black people dealing with this? Because I had a friend who moved down to Knoxville from D.C. and last year, just before the election, she was really nervous. She called me several times and wanted to talk about whether or not she needed to get a gun to protect her family. Mm -hmm. And so I think that a part of that is like everybody was sort of on edge. But a part of that is this sort of overwhelming feeling that you are in this region that is associated with this sort of violence against black folks. Trump's presidency is associated with violence against black folks and people of color and women and all the above. But being in a space where this is sort of the characteristic of the place, I know black folks were feeling uneasy and vulnerable in this place. And so I know that her calling me several times to talk about it You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So there was definitely a concern. I feel like the end of Trump's presidency, we had the insurrection at the Capitol and we saw all of the people who came from Tennessee and these Appalachian. That lady showed up from Knoxville. (laughs) Ma'am, what what happened to you? I got maced. You got maced. And what happened? You were trying to go inside the Capitol? Yeah, I made it like a foot inside and they pushed me out and they maced me. What's your, what's your name? Where are you from? My name is Elizabeth. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. And why did you want to go in? We're storming the Capitol. It's a revolution. It's a revolution. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. I got maced. My name is Elizabeth. I got maced. I got maced. Yeah, so I think, like, 
I think that oh, yeah. even before that, though, like even before the craziness on the Capitol, you know, we saw this sort of neo-Nazi action happening throughout our region and oftentimes leading to violence. So black folks were on alert because in Appalachia, regardless of if you were in urban Appalachia, rural Appalachia, suburban Appalachia, the chances of you being in a place where there's a hell of a lot of white people <laughs> is very high. Right. Right. So I'm sure that the uh, pandemic played into some of it as well. And I know that we saw what was going on with toilet paper and paper towels. Exactly. So like <laughs> if something's going to pop off, y'all, they're already going crazy over toilet paper <laughs> and paper towels. Like black folks got to be prepared. You know what I'm saying? Right. We got to make sure that we don't be SOL at the end of the day. And I think it's important also to note that even though black people are leading the charge, nearly five million Americans became new gun owners last year. And that was the highest increase that the country has ever witnessed. All in all, everybody was buying guns. So white folks were buying guns, too. And Dr. Yamani also talked about that. Right wing extremist groups and uncertainty about what Trump was going to do after the election, the boogaloo, the George Floyd protests were interesting because they stimulated both racial minorities and whites to buy more arms because of the fear of each other. I know people who they watch the, the CPAC conference and they're like, I need to get a rifle. I don't. These people are crazy. So self-defense is, I think, a universal concern and uncertainty is a big motivator to purchase firearms because you want to do something to you know, help minimize some of that uncertainty, even if it's just psychologically. So all in all, everybody's tripping, right? Maybe about different things and for different reasons, but we all are bugging when it comes to this gun thing. And I want to, I do want to know, and Dr. Yamani also mentioned this, that guns are not new to black people. And even before the black power movement of the 70s, guns are not new to black people. But in Appalachia, in our region, I think that due to so much of the region being rural, there's always been a decent amount of gun people in Appalachia, black or white. Yeah. I imagine that people rely on guns as a tool, mm. especially in some of our rural areas where, you know, hunting might be more prevalent. People use guns as a sport, shooting things. Right. I bet <laughs> our resident hillbilly can give us a couple of stories <laughs> <laughs> on just like shooting cans in his backyard or something. But birds. anyways, I hope he's not shooting birds. But <laughs> <laughs> I do remember the first time that I saw a gun range was here in this region was actually when we went up to Mountain City, Tennessee, a few months ago. And this was like Mountain City, Appalachia, very rural. It was a city on top of a mountain. But on the way down from the mountains, we saw we saw this gun range. And I guess it was a public gun range. I'd never seen one before. But to think that this is a part of the cultural landscape, you would assume that people are used to handling guns here. Yeah. But despite this sort of cultural tradition in places like our region, mm -hmm. we are seeing a shift in gun ownership for hunting or sport into a more sort of gun ownership for protection. And in response to fear, there's been a super high amount of new gun owners. So like the people who are buying guns, this 52% increase that we saw, most of them are new gun buyers or new gun owners. New gun owners tend to be more racial minority, more women, more interested in self-defense, more likely to own just one gun and that gun's a handgun. New gun owners definitely are breaking some from the mold of the traditional gun owner. 
So thinking about black folks in Appalachia owning guns, we talked with our black in Appalachia team member, Alana Norwood, and Alana was born and raised in Elizabethton near Johnson City. Yeah. And after college, she went to Berea College and after college, she returned to Johnson City to live. And Alana actually is a local activist who sort of hit the ground running like straight out of college into the scene, very involved in a lot of protests that was going on last year. Yeah. And she said that gun ownership has been a bit of a dilemma for her. She comes from gun people, but isn't exactly one herself. Yeah. So the question is, you know, to buy a gun or not to buy a gun. And for me, that's a complicated decision because on the one hand, I've been used to being around guns coming from like a military family. My dad has everything from a handgun to like an assault rifle in the house. And so it's normalized to be around guns. But then on the other hand, uh, this summer, early June, I was peacefully protesting in Johnson City and all of the protesters were unarmed, of course, like we had cardboard signs. And towards the end of the night, police came and the National Guard and SWAT and me and a couple hundred protesters were surrounded by police officers with huge guns. And in that moment, it wasn't about like protecting myself or feeling safe. It was, this is a threat and I could die tonight at the you know hands of a gun and a police officer. And so that kind of triggered something in me of like, do I need to have a gun whenever I go to these protests or like whenever I'm just walking around my city now that my face and my name is out there as an activist? For me, it's almost like, am I buying a gun out of fear or am I buying a gun to stay safe or does my safety coincide with the fear that I have of police and, you know, racist people in my town? It's never an easy decision. It's complicated. You see the police carrying guns. That's supposed to make me feel safe, but it doesn't. It makes me feel like I'm a target. And I know from the personal narratives that I heard this summer protesting that some people were carrying firearms and that made them feel safer. But to stand beside a protester with a firearm and then hours later be surrounded by police with firearms, I never felt safer. It felt like at any moment, even if it was an accidental firing, that we could all be dead. I think that's where the disconnect comes from. If on the one hand, you can be educated and use firearms properly, maybe for hunting or sport. But are you really safer when you have a gun in your house? Are you really safer if you have a gun in your car? It could be registered to me and I get pulled over. I'm going for my license and my registration and my glove box. Police officer sees that firearm. I'm automatically a threat more so than what I was as a black woman. So it's hard to say, should I buy a gun or not to buy a gun? That's all a lot and really interesting, I think, because when we're having this conversation, we're talking about black people buying guns as a form of self-defense. And when we think about self-defense in this sort of racialized context, I want to protect myself if white folks want to pop off in this pro-Trump crazy bullshit that's happening. This has always been a part of it, even thinking about the fear of being pulled over. When we say if you have a gun, you're likely to be killed by it. That takes on another level when you're thinking about an accident happening, an accident or you're in a situation where things escalate and then you get killed. But to think that if I own a gun and I'm pulled over by a cop, like my chances of dying, reaching for a wallet or something that could be perceived as reaching for a gun, shit, I guess you don't even own a gun for that to happen. But that's to me just like another, like, I don't even know if I'm obviously I'm thinking about these things, but but that just when you said that, it just felt differently. 
a good example of accidents, like not even involving police. Uh, my dad's military trained, like from the army. He's cleaning his guns in the house, like just came back from the shooting range and he picks the gun up and pulls the trigger, thinking that there was no bullets in it. And there was a bullet in the gun literally shoots the firearm in the house like inches away from his partner's face and like almost killed somebody by pure accident. Completely trained, knowledgeable, no malintentions, and somebody almost died because of having a firearm in our house. And that's usually what I think about. That's why for me, it's just like a complete no-no. You know what I mean? But what we find is that like, as far as statistics go, those are less likely to happen. They happen. And I'm sure it's tragic when it does happen. But those are the things that we think about because, you know, we hear those stories all over the media when they do happen. I mean, I think it's just something about this fear of the police. When when we think about safety, even when we think about what's happening here locally with these young people who being killed in Knoxville, there's this conversation, especially when it's children, it's easy to galvanize emotion around it. And so the conversation goes quickly to, we need more police. And people can buy into that because, well, you think of safety, you think of the police. When you look at Black people's experiences, that's not safety. And that's clearly what you said. Like, your anxiety about this, the thing that is sort of pumping your brakes is the thought of, like, like how unsafe you are with the police and how much of another level that gets to when you have a gun. You know what I'm saying? So that's that's wild to me. When we think about safety through black people's experiences, our understanding of safety can change or even fear. Like we're fearful of the police. And that is a real fear, you know, which is the most ridiculous thing to me. It's just so crazy. Well, I don't really think fear in the police is so ridiculous whenever you're well, a black or a brown person, <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and the historical roots of policing right. is directly targeted at black people. Right. So. Well, it's not ridiculous. Clearly, there's a problem, and this shouldn't be the case, right? Like, exactly. Like, we know why it's the case, and it and it makes perfect sense. Clearly, y'all got some shit fucked up. Like, something is off. Something is wrong. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't think there's enough sensitivity training in the world to stop the unnecessary killing of black people. There has to be some type of just complete revamp and, like, revisioning of what the whole f- protecting your community shit. looks like. Because... Coming in and escalating situations with three or four carloads of police, all of them have guns either drawn or their hands are on their hip indicating I'm ready to pull my weapon. Right. And so it's like you don't know what kind of call you're responding to. Like you pull up somebody's house and it seems like a violent situation, but maybe the perp is having a mental breakdown that day. Like having a gun isn't going to do any good for the protection and the safety of this family and this person that's clearly in distress. So it's like you have two targets on you as a black person. You have the target of the police, but you also have the target of white people in a very racist society where these acts of violence are almost encouraged. You know what I'm saying? Like it's almost encouraged or at least there's no real sanction. So then it seems like it's encouraged. Or justified. You know, we have legislation in place and certain in states where you can quote unquote stand your ground. Right, exactly. There's, exactly. It's insane. It shouldn't even be a thing. So we know that typical gun owners are sort of who we think of when we think of like Thug Dynasty, right? Middle-aged white guy, politically conservative, middle-class, rural. 
And black people are less likely to own guns. And I think that part of the reason why we're hesitant to buy guns is because of gun violence. We are inundated with all of these narratives from the media of gun violence. Breaking news from the suburbs. Police are investigating a shooting that left a scene of devastation. Leaving at least three people dead, shot and you know, killed. We get story after story of senseless killing of black kids, black youth, black men in particular between the ages of 15 and 24. Yeah. And for me, you know, obviously, as a journalist who has to actually cover these stories, just elicits a very personal response. It's emotional, you know, seeing our young people dying at the hands of gun violence again and again. And, you know, I do feel like the media tends to overemphasize these narratives narratives, obviously. But, you know, right now it's like there's this dark cloud like looming over our city in terms of the violence. And it's just it's exhausting. You know, just recently we saw this playing out here in Knoxville. Right. We had five black high schoolers between the ages of 15 and like 17, all killed in the span of just a few weeks. In like the vicinity of their school and their right. neighborhood. It's something that we're still wrapping our minds around as a city, as a community, as black people, right? People are hurting. People are not sure how to make sense of these killings. It's really sad. But the saddest part is that it's not new. This isn't you know, some new reality for us. It's been happening since the 90s. And just here recently during COVID-19, I feel like gun violence has definitely increased in our city, but also nationwide. And part of what's so difficult about this is usually the response of city officials and other authorities who sort of always go to policing as the solution to gun violence. You know, we were just talking about how unsafe black people are when police are involved, period. For me, it's so upsetting because, you know, our, our neighborhoods, our communities, are already over-policed. Our schools are over-policed. And to me, to add more policing into the mix, I can't even call it a Band-Aid. It just pulls a womb open even more. Just creates more hurt, more violence, more danger for Black people. I mean, we just saw it in Knoxville when one of the kids that was killed recently was a young man who was shot by the police. So in a situation where a child was in crisis and needed assistance and the police was called in, the police killed him. So, I, again, it's just I don't see how these things don't make sense. Like, how does it not make sense that when we bring police into our situations, they get worse? And it's frustrating because we know what is at the root of gun violence. We've studied this for years. We know that poverty and systematic inequalities are at the root of this violence that we see. Yes. And Dr. Yumani spoke to this point in our interview. As sociologists, we tend to think about root causes. There's a saying that a lot of liberal gun owners use, which is that you know, guns don't kill people. Systemic inequality kills people. Right. So you can all say systemic racism kills people. It's a byproduct of people being in a situation where where they feel like this is kind of rational behavior. Mm -hmm. I don't buy the you know notion that people get a gun in their hand and get crazed. We have it happening you know in the in the Piedmont Triad where I live you know right now is that there's a shooting in a retaliatory shooting in a retaliatory shooting wow. in a retaliatory shooting. People are you know shooting at each other out in front of the courthouse. You know so these these are the extent to which people just don't feel like they have any other alternative. That's the life that they're involved in. And but that again is you know a very small proportion. You know in, in any community. You know, the vast majority of people in that community are victims of that behavior rather than perpetrators, whether it's directly or we know a lot about the indirect effects of, of gun violence in terms of, you know, PTSD symptoms, the ability to, to perform well in school, those kinds of things. That gets lost as, you know, people are like, well, gun violence is really concentrated in certain areas. And But yeah. then it's like, yeah, but even within that, 
it's extremely concentrated. You know, Angela, I think it's important for us to reiterate what Dr. Yamani explained, that systematic racism is what kills people. The gun violence that we see play out in our communities are a byproduct of generation after generation of racial inequalities, of political disenfranchisement, of economic strangulation. For me, there's a very strong link between urban renewal, which we are all talking about in Knoxville, and failing schools and mass incarceration and the gun violence that we're seeing played out today. These are all manifestations of racial oppression. And I think another piece that's important to emphasize is what he said about this being concentrated in certain areas. And I think that you in the work that you do day to day can really understand that concentration. Yeah. You know, when these killings, you know, they occur, they start to define the entire community. For instance, all of East Knoxville becomes dangerous. Obviously, when we see certain headlines as a reporter, sometimes I cringe. And so I try to be careful. Personally, I think it's important that we begin to understand that the way that we tell stories plays a role in the stigma that is placed on the entire black community. And we have to be mindful of that. This is still a place that people, our children, they live, they work, they play. All black people are not involved in this violence. And it's just a small, concentrated group of people. And as you said, this is a byproduct of systematic racism. And of course, systematic racism is a word that we're not supposed to say in Tennessee. Thank you, state legislators. Like, crazy. (laughs) Uh, But anyways, you know, it is definitely a byproduct of systematic racism. Talking about all of this, we had a conversation with one of our friends who is a community activist, a resident of East Knoxville, and a black gun person who we thought had some interesting perspectives. So when we sat down with Jared Kroon, we asked him if he was a gun guy. Well, gun, I'll start with that. Gun people is often a pejorative in, in our modern society. It harkens to a vision of a person who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. And there are many layers to the gun culture, if you will. And African-American people have a context when it comes to guns. There's numerous stories of how guns have saved black lives, how guns have been utilized to fighting the military, liberating our quote-unquote nation with black lives. So we have a long history in this country with guns, and Appalachia in particular has a long history of firearms. When the uh, settlers, if you will, came to this area, it was guns that killed the game and the Indians that stood in the way of them colonizing this area. It spread into black people as well. There are many avid hunters in the black community here in Knoxville and beyond in Appalachia. So I'm a gun person. Yeah, so he's definitely a gun guy. (laughs) Yeah, Jared is gun people. And I think that some of it probably comes from his background. And we asked him about that. I was into guns before going into the military, but it was definitely an alignment of things that made gun culture and military culture are synonymous. So it really sort of professionalized my understanding and knowledge of guns because it became a tool of the job that they had you do in the Marine Corps, which is the branch of service I was in. And then when I got out, that fascination, that love carried on. And I, I to this day, I still shoot competitively. So Jared gave us the gun culture 101, competitive shooting, plinking, all these things that I absolutely know nothing about. Right. Even like gun sports being in the Olympics, that was new for me. Oh, there are many, many, many ways you can compete. I'm not like the best, but I do uh, compete anyway. So like a pickup game, if you will, at your local gym where you're not as good as you think you are, but you still want to play like you were in high school. I'm a member of the Glock Sports Shooting Foundation, and I'm a member of the NRA. Grudgingly, I'll admit, but I'm a member of the NRA. As well. And uh, both of those organizations offer competitions around the country that you can compete in with the shooting. And what that does is it, it gives you an opportunity to hone your skills and it gives you an opportunity to be around like minded people who are in the shooting sports as well. 
the other thing, you know, we definitely could talk about all the fun and games with this, but I, I know that Jared understands guns and how dangerous they are. And of course, he has to reconcile with being a gun advocate and then what is happening in his community. And we talked about that. A gun is is dangerous. I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat that. It is a tool that potentially can be destructive and it can sadly take people's lives. And that's not something I, I take lightly because I have a handgun permit here in Tennessee. So I typically carry a gun often where I'm legally able to. And I don't take that lightly. I take it very seriously that, you know, I have to be a calm person. I can't be a hothead. I can't allow road rage incidents and I can't allow being upset this morning to allow me to be put into a position where I would have have to not have to, but where I would use that firearm in a in a way that is not healthy. You have to have a, a certain mentality, in my opinion, that you are a community member and you're not just an individual with a, a firearm. So when you do that, you you put yourself amongst the us and not the them. And for me, that helps me maintain a sort of a level head. And and knowing that I can end this situation helps me not even engage in the situation because there's only a couple of ways it can go if I choose to engage uh, with the person who may have a, a stick or who may feel as if they can, uh, because of the numbers of people who they're with, harm me. That can only end in a bad way for both of us. Jared also spoke to us kind of about the root causes of some of the violence we're seeing in our own community. As we discussed earlier, you know, his thoughts kind of align with Dr. Yamani's. You ask how I feel about it. I'm, I'm devastated. As you know, I have a daughter who's 19 who graduated from Austin East High School. I attended Austin East High School back in the 80s. With that being said, our children are unfortunately stuck in the middle of a landscape that is full of poverty. There's a constellation of issues that lead to these incidents. It is poverty. It is lack of uh, many things. You know, the drug culture, the police culture, many other things culminate to these sad, sad things. Shout out to Jared for chatting with us. Us and for everybody else who sat down for us with this episode. But, you know, as we come to a close, when we think about 2020, it was definitely a year of shifts for many reasons. And one of the shifts that we saw, you know, is this sort of shift in demographics of gun owners. Maybe not necessarily shift in gun people, but definitely a shift in people who are buying guns and gun owners in general. And I think that this distinction is important because what the spike in new gun ownership suggests is that America is becoming increasingly unsafe for black people. And folks have decided that they have little to no other options in terms of protecting their safety and defending themselves. So they are taking up arms. And this is a sad reality. And in some ways, it parallels what Dr. Yamani was speaking about when he talked about the violence that we see in the streets. Gun violence is a byproduct of systematic racism, of white supremacy that has sort of created these concentrations of poverty, of political disenfranchisement, of social exclusion, where people feel, you know, this is the only option that they have. This is a mode of operation. This is a mode of power and agency for a class of people who have been pushed to the extreme margins. And so when I think about that, it's, you know, it's like, this is the way that I know to respond to what's happening. It's the same thing what we're seeing on a more mainstream level. Black folks are feeling like this is the way that I know to respond to this violence that we're experiencing overwhelmingly, increasingly. Having a gun is a form of agency. It's people's way of taking some kind of control and some kind of power over what's happening. Yeah, so um, I definitely agree. And, you know, there is a quote that comes to mind for me uh, by Malcolm X. And he says that a man with a rifle or a club can only be stopped by a person who defends himself with a rifle or a club. That's equality. If the United States government doesn't want you and me to have rifles, then take the rifles away from those races. If they don't want you and me to use clubs, take the clubs away from the races. If they don't want you and me to get violent, then stop the races from being violent. And, you know, I think that quote 
pretty much sums up exactly how I feel about it. I'm pretty sure lots of other people in the black community feel about it. At the end of the day, I do think that it is our right just as much as white people to own guns and protect ourselves. But I do think, you know, like we've discussed, there is this thin line between, you know, that and also putting ourselves in harm's way by simply having a gun in our possession. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely it's, a lot to navigate yeah. and to think through. And I think that black people are doing just that they are trying to navigate this and thinking about what is the best way to protect ourselves. And then, of course, how to think about our community safety right. at the same time, right? Because we have these sort of parallel things happening. And in many cases, they all kind of affect us negatively. So right. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, tough, it's tough. Tough place to be. Tough. And uh, let us know what y'all think about what's happening, people's response to fear through gun ownership, and of course, the violence that we're seeing in our communities. Okay, Angela, so before we leave, before we leave the people, let's give them something. What's going on in your life? What are you reading? What are you listening to? Yeah. Share something. I'm not reading. I'm just doing a lot of writing, you know, with everything going on lately working hard, but definitely needing to take these mental breaks away from everything and this sadness going on. So I'm trying to get away some more this year. Yeah. yeah, it's been a tough two years or a year and a half. I think it's important to remind ourselves that we are in a pandemic. And so like people have been feeling the weight of it in many different ways, mm-hmm. a lot of depression and, yeah. you know, people are finding different outlets. I've been reading a lot as a way to understand how to deal with the world, how to deal with mm-hmm. myself as an escape from, you know, the depression and everything. And so lately I've been reading a lot of fiction. I read The Vanishing Half recently and Such a Fun Age. But the thing that I'm thinking about, the the book that I'm thinking about related to this topic that we touched on today is Mickey Kendall's Hood Feminism. And in Mm -hmm. there she talks about how gun violence is a feminist issue. And that was something that I never really thought about. When we talk about gun violence, a lot of times we think about black men being killed. But she wants us to think about how this affects black women as well. So that's a good book if you all are looking for something to read. As we go for real for real make sure that y'all are subscribed to the black and appalachia podcast wherever you get podcasts share this podcast with a friend a family member co-worker somebody who you think needs to hear it of course y'all continue to follow us and share our social media we are black and appalachia on facebook and instagram you can also and twitter find us on the web at black you can also send us an email at podcast at black and yes and you can find me if you're interested if you would like to find me i am I'm Kesha Lamine, and you can find me on Instagram at Sewing Sociologist. And I am Angela Dennis. You can find me as Angela D. Writes on Twitter and Angela Dennis Writes on Instagram and as myself on Facebook. Awesome sauce. You can find the rest of our team in the studio <laughs> at East Tennessee PBS. We got James <laughs> Baines on the audio, Chris Smith, our senior producer, and William Ison is the director of the Black and Appalachian Project. Y'all, it's been real. Really real. Holler at us. Don't storm the Capitol. Don't get maced. <laughs> Don't be like Elizabeth. Is her name Elizabeth? <laughs> Don't be like Elizabeth. <laughs> Bye.